disabled is actually can be a very empowering word and I'm sure like once you got your diagnosis and you you came on your journey of accepting that you were disabled actually at the end of it you were quite empowered because like you said you found new coping mechanisms you found a new community you found a whole group of people who were who were like you and willing to support you on your journey and that must have been incredibly empowering after feeling like you were so alone for so long. Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled, and why they're proud to be themselves. So, Nina, welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really, really good. I'm quite tired, but I'm really good. Yeah, it's been it's been a good morning so far. So I'm excited about this chat. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem. So what I like to start with with everyone is asking you, how do you refer to your disability? So this could be how it's like medically diagnosed, how you personally refer to it, what you say to people when they ask you what your disability is um, or, or anything along those lines. Um, So I say that I have a genetic disability um, and then in more detail, it's a genetic connective tissue disorder um, called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And then I have a bunch of co-occurring comorbid conditions um, all to do with that. So I used to refer to myself as being chronically ill before I realised that I was also disabled. But now I definitely refer to myself as disabled and chronically ill. Wow, that's quite a... That's quite a lot to take on as a person to to give yourself the label of disabled and chronically ill. How have you like come to that decision to use both and how do you intertwine them if if you do? Well, um, I originally, I mean, I've called myself chronically ill for many years because um, I have been symptomatic since I was about 10 years old. And then by the, by the time I had years of it, I just realised that, you know, I was chronically ill. Um at the time, I didn't have a proper diagnosis and I kind of thought in my naive way that it would go away. Um, and then once I got my diagnosis, I didn't get my diagnosis until I was 23 years old. Um, I realized that it was not going to go away and it was genetic. And having the diagnosis really gave me some kind of validity to my symptoms. And I also realized quite a lot of things that I thought everyone experienced. I thought it was really normal to hate standing up. I thought it was really normal for everyone to be in pain and exhausted when they stood up um, and just to be really tired all the time. Because, you know, it's in, in society, people are like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm really tired. Um, and everyone's always on the go as well. So at what point is like my tired and your version of tired two very different things? Exactly. So I just sort of put a lot of things down to like normal and everyone experiences it. I'm just, I just struggle more than everyone. Um, And then I realized that that's not true. Um, And also, even when I got my diagnosis, I still just called myself chronically ill Mm -hmm. because I didn't think I was, quote unquote, disabled enough. I didn't think I was bad enough, ill enough to be called disabled. Oh, my! no, I'm not disabled. I'm not in a wheelchair. I also thought, you know, disabled equals wheelchair. Um, and you know, so many people have it worse. I can do things. I was at university at the time. I, you know, do sports. Um, and then after a little bit longer in the sort of chronically ill and disabled space online, like I met, met a lot of friends and followed people who were also chronically ill and disabled and realizing that 
they identify as disabled and I'm very much like them and what disabled actually means. I was like, no, I actually, I am disabled. I can call myself disabled. Yeah. Um, and I did a lot of research and it took a lot of time even mentally to come to, to that because, you know, in society we see disabled as this bad thing. Yeah. Um, so I realised I realized that it's not a bad thing. You can have, you know, it's not this thing that's a gatekeeping club either. You can have people, lots of different experiences of disability um, and that I qualified. So now I, I tend to just say disabled, but I am also chronically ill, you know, so. So it's, it is both. And I think what you say about, you know, using the word disabled is, is so, it's so true because I think for a long, long time, and I've said this before and I know I'll say it again, is that for a very, very long time, far too long, is that society has equated disabled with inadequate and because you know for whatever reason if you acquire your disability or if you're born disabled using the word disabled suddenly deem kind of deemed you as an inadequate and it's now actually the reason that I've called the podcast disabled and proud is to reclaim that power of the word disability because actually disabled doesn't mean inadequate at all it's almost just signposting you to know that actually this body is not the same as everybody else's but that doesn't mean that it's any less worthy yeah exactly it's just like it's a label like you label height you label hair color this is a similar label obviously different things you know if you've got paler skin you might need a bit more sun cream it's the same thing you know if you're disabled you might need certain different things um than than able-bodied or non-disabled people um but it's it's not inherently bad and it doesn't make you any less as you say yeah exactly and so with all of this and I think it's really interesting that you got your diagnosis not necessarily late on because I think for what you have the diagnosis is generally a bit later on in life isn't it because of how it presents itself am I am I wrong in thinking that you're right it's well, it's partly because there isn't enough information about um, EDS. Um, and generally speaking, I think on average in the UK, it takes 10 years from symptom onset to diagnosis. 10 years. Um, and that is because, um, so there are 13 different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and I have the most common type. And all of the types are seen as being rare. They're, they're told in the medical community, they're seen being rare. There are definitely rare types, mm-hmm. but the most common type, people who actually know about it don't think it's rare. It's just rarely diagnosed. Yeah. So a lot of doctors don't know about it. They think it's this thing that almost no one has. And if they do have it, it's really extreme. But actually, it seems to be a lot more cases of, for example, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome are actually hypermobile EDS. Hypermobile is the type. Um, yeah. And that it's much more common than people think. They just don't get the diagnosis. So in my mind, I always saw EDS as, and I don't know, I always thought it was to do with producing too much collagen, but I think that's pretty wrong, isn't it? But it's something to do with the ability for your joints to to kind of come out of place quite easily. So it is to do with collagen. Um, it's not about producing too much. It's the collagen that we produce is too weak and stretchy. Okay. So uh, that is just the hypermobile type. The different types of EDS all have different um, connective tissue that it affects. Okay. But I, um, I think some, quite a lot of them do affect collagen, but I know that hypermobile EDS 
affects collagen. Um, and so, like you said, what it does mean is that my joints come out of place more easily. So I, um, I'm hypermobile, um, which you have to be to have EDS. And um, I have more common subluxations and dislocations. Um, subluxations are partial dislocations. So where the joint doesn't fully come out of place, but partially comes out of place. Um, but it also affects lots of other systems. So um, there's lots of co-occurring conditions that have that come along with it um, almost in a lot of cases. Um, and they affect the um, cardiovascular system, the nervous system, the digestive system. Um, it, it just affects basically every organ in the body because connective tissue is what holds your body together. Yeah not just the joints so it's everything um so it seemed that the symptoms can seemingly be really random um but actually it you know just affects the entire body really so with all of that in mind and and the idea that obviously this is this is genetically to do with your connective tissue yeah like firstly like no wonder you were tired standing up like <laughs> that like when you when you explain it like that I'm like yeah I, I would be yeah I completely understand that but secondly, I'm wondering how how has this affected your, like your career, the idea of the workspace that you go into, and considering yours is so yours is to do with hypermobility and annual mobility. How has this affected like the workspace that you've worked in? Have you ever come across any issues, or alternatively, have you had some like incredible employers who have been utterly understandable? So I graduated from university um, in. 2020 so I've had a, a journey finding a job I was gonna say 2020 was probably not the best year for that <laughs> really not the best year um so apart from you know disability stuff not the best year for finding a job um I, I, I it took me a bit longer to finish my university uh, studies because I I went to university um at the usual time and then had to leave because my health was, uh-huh. I just couldn't do it um and then I went back um, and managed it this time. Uh, But finding a career has been really interesting because not only am I in the usual position of come out of university, not sure what I really want to do, but also trying to find a job that is accessible. Yeah. Because what I've realized is I can't work full time. Uh, I'm not going to be able to come into the office five days a week. I probably wouldn't be able to come into the office three days a week because commuting is, you know, so exhausting for me. And also I'm not going to be able to do a really high stress, high, you know, demanding career, even though, you know, I love a mental challenge. I know that my body won't let me. Um, So it's been really interesting finding what works. I still am not sure I have, I'm still finding my way, but I'm a bit more hopeful, especially I think the pandemic has actually helped with accessibility, making things mm-hmm. online, you know, much more flexible. People realise that you can work from home and come into the office a little bit, you know, so there's a lot more leeway there. Um, so I'm still on that on that journey. And it it's one of the things that not having figured it out two years after graduating, it's something that makes my it makes me feel a bit insecure and I know that a lot of it is to do with my disability because a lot of my friends who are not in that position can just find pretty much anything that works for them yeah Uh, but I I also know that I'm lucky in the sense that I get to find something that will work for me um, and that will work well 
me so but hopefully that will come soon I think though with the interesting obviously that you graduated in 2020 and the pandemics I think what you said you're not the first person to have said on this podcast that actually the pandemic was one of the best things that could have happened for accessibility because a lot of people were fighting to be able to work from home and suddenly this big pandemic came along and that was the only option that people had now for people who are able-bodied and are able to go into the office it may have seemed really really shit however for those who couldn't necessarily do it or who were doing it at the detriment of their health were so relieved and it made employers realize that actually they don't always need a big overhead like an office if things can be done over like teams over zoom over whatever other platform you use so I think it's really interesting that you say that actually it's been a really beneficial thing because you're not the only person I know who said that but also I think it's completely normal especially after the pandemic to feel a bit lost because I, I know a lot of people who went into 2020 expecting it to be the best year of their life and obviously like it was horrendous for everyone that like I don't genuinely don't know anybody who had a good year and if, if you did feel free to message me and tell me about all the lovely stuff you did in 2020 but I genuinely don't know anybody who came out of that year unscathed and I think it's actually going to take a little while for people especially around about our age I'd say we're both like what early to mid 20s to figure out because we've had two years of our youth completely stripped away from us yeah and when I think about the experiences that I had from the ages of like 21 to 23 compared to the two years that I had in the pandemic I had absolutely no new experiences but from the ages of 21 to 23 I lived in two different countries like I was out meeting new people and I had none of that for two years so I think it's so completely normal because I think a lot of people feel that way and to a certain extent I like I worked in healthcare in 2020 and 2021 and it was I I don't want to be dramatic by saying this but they were two of the worst work years of my life (laughs) I just I worked every single day of 2020 bar Christmas day just because of how the pandemic played out yeah so I think that it's so completely normal to feel that way about it and like even I would say probably even more of it difficult that you had to graduate during that time because I bet the end part of your academic year everyone was like yeah what about a lecture like what do we do yeah Yeah, online exams was interesting (laughs) oh I can imagine oh goodness that must have been really difficult so with all of this in mind and you didn't get a diagnosis until you were 23. Do you think that that had a bit of a, like a more of a long-term mental effect? Because obviously I've spoken to people who have said that because they didn't get their diagnosis immediately, a lot of people around them were like, oh, maybe there's nothing wrong. But actually knowing full well that there is something wrong, do you think that probably had like some, a part to play in how much you fought for your own diagnosis? Yes, I think it, I mean, mentally, it was so emotional getting my diagnosis. Yeah. And it also meant that for a long time, I didn't ask for help. I pushed through things that I shouldn't have had to push through. Um, And that means that also it can seem like after the diagnosis, I have become more disabled, Uh more fanatic, when really it's that I've realized that I can ask for help. I can show when I can't do things versus I just have to do it. I have no other choice. Um, I was really lucky that my parents fought for me and they always believed Uh, 
that there was something wrong. They knew that there was something wrong. It was just, you know, the medical industry that didn't seem to think there was anything wrong with me or didn't know what to do with me. Yeah. And so it was just a case of, well, this is your life. Get on with it. You know, we don't, it's, uh, my diagnosis originally was chronic fatigue, but they sort of had this hand wavy approach of, mm, you know, you just, you just seem chronically tired and you just have lots of weird symptoms, but you know, we don't really know what to do. Um, and I always felt very alone because I always felt like my body was really odd. Mm-hmm. Um, no one else, no one else's body was odd like mine because yeah. it wasn't just, I was chronically fatigued. I had lots of different odd symptoms here and there. Um, and then when I got the diagnosis and I realized that there were lots of other people like me and that there was support for people like me, there were things that could make my life easier, that I didn't have to just push through and not talk about it and not really tell people because I couldn't really explain it myself. Um, that it just, it was such a weight lifted off me. And so now I, I can talk about it. I can explain it to people. I have other people who go through things like me and I can ask for help. So it's just so much better mentally. Yeah. And so after having a diagnosis and, you, and you've gone through some real hardship to get your diagnosis, because it, it's, it's never easy from what I gather. And yeah. I mean, we both have a mutual friend who has the same um, diagnosis as yourself. And I remember before she was diagnosed and after she was diagnosed, I remember the relief and everything that came along with that. And uh, But I also equally remember the fight that she went through to get the diagnosis. Do you think going through that fight and pushing forward and like coming out the end with an answer, do you think it's maybe given you like a positive attribute to like your personality or how you handle yourself? I think definitely I think it makes me I mean it makes me really grateful that I have an explanation and I have an answer um because I know that there are so many people out there who don't Mm -hmm. um and I also in a slightly slightly negative I understand the medical system which is not the nicest it's not the nicest thing to understand because it can be really difficult but I also know how to navigate it a bit um but you know, all hardship makes you stronger as much as people shouldn't have to go through things like that. It it gives you compassion and empathy and understanding. And I'm just, you know, lucky that I'm in a position where there are things that can help me. I do have a diagnosis. I have people who are understanding. Um, So yeah, I just, I I do feel very lucky for for that. So when you say that you have things that help you, what what are these types of things that, that do help you? So I have some medications that I can take for some of my comorbid conditions mm-hmm. um, and they have been helping. I also have a much more understanding of um, what my limits are and what I can do to stop me feeling awful. So um, I, before my diagnosis, I didn't know that, for example, standing for long periods of time can really make me I mean, I knew that I hated standing and I felt awful, but I just would, I would randomly crash or I would have yeah. things. I just, I was just ran, you know, in randomly, I didn't understand why I was suddenly so exhausted or why I was suddenly these, you know, I would get really symptomatic. And now I know there are certain things like standing for long periods of time that really can cause me mm-hmm. to feel terrible afterwards. 
and I know I know that exercise helps me but I also know my limits so I know yeah. oh this joint's feeling weird you know before I, I I was a bit like oh I just I get injured a lot and I didn't really understand why I didn't understand what to do what when to stop and now I do and I really have a very good understanding of my body um and so I know when I'm when my body's like yeah you can do this and my body's like yeah. no too much stop and so I have been getting injured less um so that's you know positive yeah big big benefit because I know that you are into the aerial hoop yes that's, that's what you call it isn't it like where the hoop goes that goes in the sky yeah. <laughs> it's like 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 circus things like if people don't know what aerial is it's um like in circus when you have a trapeze that's a type of aerial but instead of the trapeze it's just like a hula hoop that hangs from the ceiling basically I think I really like the idea of it but the practicality for me is that um my balance is obviously not centered so it's like a little bit to the left and and the any idea of me like going up high and trying to balance I just know that I would be that person that would like topple forward (laughs) well I mean it's if you have an understanding of your center of gravity it would be very possible and there are um quite a few amputee pole dancers and aerialists out there so um and I know one of them um is a teacher so if you were ever interested that they would probably be able to give you tips do you know what I think I might might give it a go this crossfit thing doesn't work out for me (laughs) we'll see I might get myself up on a hoop (laughs) with with everything that you've gone through in terms of you know fighting fighting for your um, diagnosis and realizing that you know your body wasn't necessarily the normal and all that kind of stuff is there any piece of advice that you would either give a younger version of yourself or a younger person with the same disability as you I think if a younger person with the same disability as me if they know that they have EDS find other people who have it the community knowing other people it just makes such a difference to have other people who are going through the same thing you can talk about it and it makes you feel so much less alone Mm -hmm. I think for a younger version of me it's hard because I don't feel that I did anything badly I just feel like I wish I'd have known sooner because yeah me the coping tools and and I would have been able to ask for help, understand myself, not feel so alone and strange and scared. Um, so, I, I, you know, I just think, I, I think I did very well <laughs> with what I had. Um, yeah. I have a lot of like patience and grace for myself. You can only do as the best that you can with, with what you have. Yeah, and that's, exactly. You know, a lot of people when they look back on themselves as as a young person they think oh I wish I'd have done this I wish I'd done that you did the best that you could with what you knew at the time Um, I I just wish I had the diagnosis sooner I think it would have made such a difference to my life my parents life understanding me as a child as a young adult etc so I just wish that more people especially in the medical community knew about EDS um, and it was a more accessible diagnosis to get so with the diagnosis of eds and i'm only asked because i'm just i'm genuinely so intrigued by this because it's, it is so rare or you know like as you say it is it's rare but like within the community it's not actually that rare yeah. is how does it get diagnosed do you have to go to specialists is it like blood test like how does it all work because in my head 
I can't quite figure out how you would get there because there would surely be some like pathway for specialists. But if it's really difficult and really rare, and I know that it's really under-researched, how do you get to the point where you get a diagnosis, if you don't mind me asking? So for all of the other types of EDS, um, it's a DNA test because they uh-huh. have a genetic marker. For hypermobile EDS, they there's research indicating they might have found the genetic marker, but it's still research in progress. So they yeah. don't have a genetic test for it yet. So you have to go to a rheumatologist and have um, who, who knows about EDS and there is a diagnostic criteria that they check you for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with getting there is ideally, really with hypermobile EDS, anyone should be able to look at the diagnostic criteria and diagnose you. But if you go to... Um, doctors who don't know about it, they very often dismiss because they have a lot of misconceptions about it. For example, my friend went to someone who said, oh no, you can't have um, EDS, you've never had piles. That's not even on the diagnostic criteria. There's no, so, you know, there's so much misinformation. A lot of doctors will go, don't really know about it. So they, they just get, you know, dismissed or people will go, I think I have EDS and they'll look at you, do a few things and go, no, you don't. I'm not going to refer you. Mm-hmm. I was really lucky enough to be able to pay for a private appointment with a rheumatologist who specializes in EDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know a lot of people are not in that position. And so if your GP is not referring you to someone or they refer you to a rheumatologist who doesn't know about EDS, there's also the likelihood that the diagnosis is not going to happen even if you have it. So I just wish more people actually knew about it. Um, and also, the I didn't, for many years, I didn't even know about EDS. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people don't even know of it. They just think, oh, I've got fatigue and pain and I'm you know, injured a lot and I get lots of dizziness and lightheadedness and I, I can't eat certain foods. And those are all really very sporadic, random symptoms, seemingly random. Yeah. Of doctors won't know to put those all together, go, you don't happen to be extra, you know, hypermobile, do you? Oh, that could be EDS. Yeah. Um, so there needs to be more knowledge of the symptoms as well um, as just someone coming to them going I think I might have it so it's a bit complicated yeah and it's it's not an easy one at all mm-hmm. and I think and I don't know where your standpoint on this and I tread really lightly when I make this comment because the term invisible illness does not apply to me my disability is incredibly physical you cannot look at me and not realize that my disability is there how do you feel on the standpoint of of the term invisible illness because I I personally don't know how to approach it because that's not my lived experience but because it is yours what's how do you talk about that and and how do you like navigate that conversation I just really wish people knew more that disability doesn't have a look that a lot of disabilities are invisible um because you know my existence a lot of the time is that I don't look disabled yeah if you know what you're looking for and you look closely you can see my disability you can often see me struggle to stand up or I stand up too quickly and get dizzy um sorry my coffee machine's just turning itself off in the background having a good time it's loving the chat (laughs) I thought I had turned all noisy things off but that was just gone I just wanted to chip in. Yeah. <laughs> <Involved>. <laughs> um, 
almost finished. Um, so if you look closely enough, you can see little signs that I'm disabled. You can see little things, you know, might be able to see that I'm in a bit of pain or that I get dizzy when I stand up or that sometimes I walk a bit with a bit of a limp or there's certain things, but people don't see that and think disability. Um, so a lot of the time, unless sometimes I use a, a walking stick or a mobility aid or knee braces, um, but most of the time I just don't look disabled and I that means I don't get the support necessarily that I, I need. Mm-hmm. Um, I often, in fact, now I always wear a please offer me a seat badge on the tube or on public transport. Yeah. And that does help now. And I think the pandemic, again, has helped make people aware of invisible conditions. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people will look at me. I'm young. I don't have anything visibly wrong with me. And they will think, why well, she got a bad job? She doesn't need a seat or she doesn't need help. Why would she need help? She's not disabled. Um, so I think I just, I just wish people understood more. And also if I do have something like my knee braces, a walking stick, the first question people ask me is what have you done to yourself? When did you have an accident? What did you do? And it's like, I I didn't do anything. I'm just disabled. This leads Um, so perfectly onto my next question, which is, do you have a set of questions that you find most annoying regarding a disability? And I know and I know that you do because I follow you on social media. So I know that you, you've spoken about this. And I'm just, I'm very intrigued to hear what you have to say on this because our viewpoints on this are incredibly similar. But then I've also had conversations with people who don't find any question annoying. And I'm always like, oh, I wish I had that much compassion for other people. But yeah. I, just, I don't. <laughs> I, I find it annoying in that, uh, th- that question, what have you done? Yeah. yeah how did you hurt yourself you know oh which knee is the problem I'm like no no every you know all parts of me are the problem I'm I, I haven't done Actually, it it's also my shoulder what are you gonna do about it exactly and um uh, you know my response to that is oh no I haven't done anything I'm just disabled um and that tends to be the end of the conversation because it tends to make people uncomfortable yeah um that I find that question I find I wouldn't say annoying. It just baffles me because, I mean, you wouldn't ask, for example, an older person with a walking stick, oh, what have you done to yourself? No. Um, So it just, I just find it really interesting. But in terms of questions, I think anything that's really um, personal, I find frustrating because it's the fact that people think that they're just entitled to any information about you. But I'm lucky enough that generally the personal question is just what have you done? And I can just go nothing. Yeah. I think more irritating comments is, you know, oh, well, you don't look disabled. That's my least favorite of all. <laughs> or like, oh, you look better. Or like, you know, why do you need X, Y, Z? Um, I'm lucky that I tend to surround myself with people who don't make those comments. Mm-hmm. But I know that they are out there. So. And I think it's very interesting what you said earlier is that when you were, you know, coming to the realization that you were disabled is that one of the first things you thought of was I'm not disabled because I'm not in a wheelchair. And it's because we associate the sign for disability, as everybody knows, is a person in a wheelchair. That's what's on all the blue badges. That's what's on all the disabled parking spots, particularly in the UK. I'm not necessarily sure if it's everywhere else, but I'm pretty sure it's universal. Yeah. So I think I completely agree with what you say in terms of 
sometimes it can be very, very difficult to accept your disability when you don't look like the image that is portrayed as disability. And I think it's something, I I always make the statistic up, but I know it's a really high number. It's something along the lines of like 89% of disabled people do not identify with the image of disability. And I think that has a lot to play with how people relate to disability. Because like you said, because you don't necessarily use a wheelchair and you'll use your sticks people are almost confused because you seemingly look like an able-bodied you know young female who is navigating like transportation unaided like so therefore because you don't look like this symbol therefore you are not however that's just not the case yeah um the the one statistic I do know is that only in the UK only eight percent of disabled people are wheelchair users eight percent this was when I was doing all of my disability research and I was like oh you know okay there are some other disabilities it's only eight percent that use a wheelchair and yet that is the symbol of disability which just blows my mind um like eight percent yeah 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 that is genuine like that that's genuinely blowing my my mind yeah um so it's it's not it's not anywhere near the majority of disability um and I think also there's a lot of there's a lot of ideas around wheelchair users that for example they're all paralyzed actually a lot of wheelchair users can walk under certain uh, circumstances or are not paralyzed or have you know so it's just it's it's so interesting that it's such a minority that people think of as that's what disabled is. Um, and also looking into, I've looked into some um, like employment law and like the Equality Act. There's a lot of people who qual- qualify legally would be disabled who would not call themselves disabled. They're legally protected, but actually a lot of people who are legally, legally protected would be could be called disabled, don't call themselves disabled, wouldn't call themselves disabled. And that's, you know, it took me a long time to identify, but there are lots of people out there who who don't because I think some of it, I think some of it has to do with the image of what disability is. And I think some of it has to do with the fact that people think being disabled is this terrible thing. Yeah, and I was about to come on to that is that you often wear a T-shirt that says disability is not a dirty word. And I know that they were created by the chronic iconic. Yes, um, and I also have some of her shirts as well that I wear. Um, and I think that's also what I really would love to get across on this podcast is that disability is not bad. Yeah. And that like, like, you know, we've, we've spoken about it earlier. Disabled is not inadequate. Mm-hmm. And we like, I almost want to like drive this point home is that actually disabled is actually can be a very empowering word and I'm sure like once you got your diagnosis and you you came on your journey of accepting that you're disabled actually at the end of it you were quite empowered because like you said you found new coping mechanisms you found a new community you found a whole group of people who were who were like you and willing to support you on your journey and that must have been incredibly empowering after feeling like you were so alone for so long yeah and it was nice to feel there was a long time where I felt like I was too ill to be normal, but not, you know, ill enough to be disabled. But that's, you know, not the case. There's, there's so many different ways to be disabled. Yeah. 
even within the same diagnosis. Um, there's so many, there's so many different kinds of disabilities, and within each one, they can affect the individual person so differently. Um, you know, it's. I, I think people don't understand that, and I think, you know, I think disability representation and visibility is really important, and there's not enough of that. You know, representation in the media and just people don't talk about disability who aren't disabled, which. I, I wish more people talked about it, yeah. but also if there is some representation, it is a wheelchair user or it's, it's one person and that's not diverse in itself. There needs to be diverse representation of disability because within disability, it's so diverse. And while there are parts of my disability that I really don't enjoy, <laughs> disability itself is not, it's not bad. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you any less. Um, there are definitely struggles, just like with every part of being a human being. There's certain things that are struggles and make life harder or easier. That's the same with disability, but being disabled is not a bad or shameful or like people shouldn't be feeling sorry for you. Like that's that's not yeah. it's not it's just a description that's all it is yeah and I think you're very very correct in what you say about representation because what I find obviously quite a lot of what I do is is in the sporting world and for my entire life I have always been asked when will I be going to the Paralympics Mm -hmm. and it's very much either the Paralympics and like you're going to be some hero and that's how you like save yourself as a disabled person or pity and there isn't a real in between you can't really be like semi-decent at sport but not a Paralympian if you're disabled there isn't the space for that at the minute and like that's what people are trying to create trying to push forward that's what a lot of adaptive athletes are trying to do to be like actually the Olympics are so far away from our remit and it's not what we want but we just want to be athletes in our own right the idea of diverse disability representation it almost would be mind-blowing for people who are not disabled. Yeah, and it's this idea where people either see disability as like, oh, this terrible thing, or mm-hmm. the like inspiration porn, the idea that a disabled person is so inspiring for just living their life. Now, it, it, which is just rubbish and it's this idea that makes you know non-disabled people feel better because they're like oh well I it could be that you know I could have this it could be worse but that again is inherently devaluing being disabled that being disabled is worse than which it is not and living your life as a disabled person does not make you inherently more brave or more inspiring or more anything than anyone else now if you went and you know hiked up Mount Everest Wow, I would be inspired, but I'm inspired by anyone who hikes up Mount Everest. Because yeah, yeah. you've done a freaking feat. <laughs> exactly. Whatever it is, you know, if they've done something inspiring, great. But also, not all disabled people either have to be like sob stories or inspiring yeah. stories. We can just be people living our lives. Like you say, we can be people who enjoy sports or don't enjoy sports or have this hobby or do that thing or have amazing careers or have families or some people, you know, can't have careers and have families but they live their life and they contribute to the world and their their life in whatever way they can and that is just fine you know and I think inspiration porn is something that is 
is very a very difficult topic for non-disabled people to accept and the way that I try and explain it is when someone said to me like oh you're so inspiring for for showing up at the gym and I'm like my body is not here to make you feel better about the lack of ability that you put into your own body like I am not here to make you feel better I am doing this for myself and that's the best way that I can describe it when someone, when so, because you'll get comments, I get comments, pr- pretty much everybody I know will get a comment of, you are so inspiring. And I'm like, I'm in Sainsbury's getting my sushi. Like, it's really not that interesting. Like, I really need my lunch. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's the thing. If you're actually doing something inspiring, I think, I think what I've not had so many comments where I've felt, you know, it's not in, I'm not in Sainsbury's getting my lunch because you know, I don't look disabled. No one's going <laughs> to say to me. But I, I think asking those people, hey, would you say the same thing to a non-disabled person doing what I'm doing? No, and don't say it to me. If you would, great, thanks. I will take that. You know, if you By think, all means. If you, if, I, if you think I've done something great, just like the next person, if they had done it, amazing but if you think that a person is inspiring just for doing something with a disability then maybe like rethink rethink your standpoint on what you're saying exactly well I've got one final question for you and that is Nina can you say that you are disabled and proud yes very much so (laughs) yay (laughs) oh brilliant Thank you so, so much for coming on today. I think this conversation has been very, very enlightening considering that this has not been about a physical disability. This has very much been about a disability that isn't always seen and it's under research and it's under under understanded. That was horrendous, horrendous English. I'm so sorry for everybody who just had to listen to that. (laughs) Under research, (laughs) that's what I meant. (laughs) honestly put me in the bin um yeah but thank you so much because I think this will be quite enlightening to a lot of people who don't necessarily understand the concept of invisible disability and how this can affect a person so thank you very very much for coming on today I really appreciate the time that you've given up to come here and speak to me thank you so much for having me it's been so lovely to talk to you oh thank you so much and I'm sure we'll do something like this again soon (laughs) thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of Disabled and Proud. If you've enjoyed the show, then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. It really helps us to reach more and more people each week. Plus, if you've got a particular highlight, then I'd absolutely love to hear it. Tag me on your Insta stories at Disabled and Proud Podcast.